Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Space News Roundup. This for the week of the 5th to 11th of July, 2021. I'm Blaine Curcio, joined as always by my co-host, Jean Deville. Before getting into this week's stories, a special shout out to our good friends at Spacewatch.Global and GoTikonauts, two excellent sources of space industry news. Also a short reminder, if you have not done so already, check out the Dongfang Hour newsletter. This week, we bring you a handful of different launches that have occurred over the last several days. We bring you updates on a couple of different cities encouraging satellite manufacturing and other related industries in their uh, development plans. But first, Jean is going to bring us a summary of China's first EVA with the Tianha core module. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to welcome you aboard the Dongfang Hour. Please make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened. Thank you. Sean, what does EVA stand for? Uh, absolutely. So EVA stands for extravehicular activity. Basically, it means having astronauts get into pressurized suits and conducting activities in the vac- uh, in the vacuum of space. So in the past week, we had Taikonauts Liu Boming and Tang Hongbo successfully complete a seven-hour EVA on July the 4th, marking the second EVA ever um, by China, the first one having taken place in 2008 with the crew of the Shenzhou 7 mission. I think back then, uh, we probably all remember this uh, quite famous picture of a Taikonaut um, outside of the Shenzhou spacecraft waving a Chinese flag. And so this EVA, the second EVA that took place a couple of days ago, is uh, one of the highlights of the Shenzhou 12 mission. It, ta- it takes place barely um, two weeks after the Shenzhou 12 spacecraft docked uh, with the Tianhe core module of the Chinese space station that was on June the 17th. And now to briefly go through what was done during this EVA and how everything took place. So basically, we had um, the two Taikonauts, which were to perform the EVA. So um, uh, Liu Boming and Tang Hongbo, they first moved to the multi-docking nod section of the Tianhe core module. And we had the remaining Taikonaut, which is Nia Haisheng. Uh, he remained in the cylindrical parts of the um, Tianhe core module, which is basically, uh, we can consider that as the command center of the Tianhe module. And and so Liu Boming and Tang Hongbo then dressed up in their EVA suits. All hatches were closed, and notably the hatch between uh, the multi-docking nod and the rest of the Tianhe core module, as well as the hatch between this nod and the orbital module of the Shenzhou spacecraft. And then once all the hatches were closed, the nod was then depressurized to equalize pressures between uh, basically the nod and the vacuum of space. And something that was different, by the way, with the way things were done here compared to um, the Shenzhou 7 is that the air is not wasted. It's not just released into the vacuum of space. Uh, there are air pumps that pump the air back into the air circuits of the Tianhe core module. So um, that's something to note. And then once that was done, well, then the Taikonauts could open the EVA hatch, which is situated at the top of the multi-docking nod, and they were able to go outside after putting a protective cover over the exit hatch. And the first tasks that the Taikonauts performed involved the robotic arm. So basically, uh, Nia Haisheng was um, inside inside the, the Tianhe module. He was controlling the robotic arm from inside uh, while Liu Boming and Tang Hongbo worked um, together to put a number of additional systems on the robotic arm. And this namely was foot restraints and um, a workstation. And this enables uh, the robotic arm to 
sort of be the helping hand of the Taikonauts when they perform various tasks outside of uh, the Chinese space station. And notably, one of the important roles is uh, to, able, to be able to move Taikonauts around to different areas outside of the um, Chinese space station. And next, we had um, Tang Hongbo move to an area that was between the small and the large uh, cylindrical modules of the Tianhe uh, module and shortly fo followed by Leo Boeing. And this is an area where you have uh, the panoramic camera that we had mentioned in past episodes. And uh, basically, Tang Hongbo added an extension, which they nicknamed the selfie stick and which would elevate a little bit this um, camera, this panoramic camera. And the idea is to give this camera a larger um, field of view. And as an article that from China Aerospace News suggested, these are operations that have been uh, rehearsed countless times by the Taikonauts. There's notably this underwater uh, Tianhe core module on the ground where um, Taikonauts had the opportunity to practice um, in an environment that simulates to some extent weightlessness. And the final task that was performed by the Taikonauts was this emergency return drill during which we had Tang Hongbo move to the furthest point away from the nod of the Tianhe core module. And basically, once he had reached that point, he had to return as quickly as possible to the nod. And the idea is to train Taikonauts to evacuate and get back into the nod in case, um, you know, maybe life support systems have encountered some issues, or maybe the Chinese space station is um, going through an area where there's a strong concentration of space debris. Um, and once this was completed, the two Taikonauts returned to the node. We had Liu Boming disassemble the foot restraints in the workstation on the robotic arm, and then the Taikonauts returned inside the nod, closed the hatch, and then engage the recompression of the nod module. And only when this was complete could they take off their EVA suits, open the hatch between the nod and the cylindrical parts of the uh, Tianhe module, and return to the living quarters. A seven-hour EVA, that would be pretty unbelievable. And it must have been really nail-biting for Nie Haishun, uh, uh, maybe, uh, inside of the of Tianhe, you know, just sort of watching his uh, his two colleagues out there uh, in the... in not so far from the depths of space. So tough work day for the, uh, for the Taikonauts up on, uh, on Tianhe. Uh, so moving into the second piece of news this week, we had four launches occur in China over the last week. So this is uh, impressive even by China standards. So this year they're planning about 40 launches. And so this is uh, quite a bit more than the average week. And of course, this is made possible partly because of the fact that China has quite a few different launch centers and that they can be, um, you know, the launches can be prepared in parallel and then done in parallel. And so the first launch this week was on July 3rd from the Taiyuan Launch Center. It was a Long March 2D rocket. The main payload was the Jilin, zero, uh, the Jilin 1 Quanfu 01B, a high-res submeter level resolution satellite built by our good friends at the Earth Observation Company CGSTL up in Changchun. And we believe the satellite to be about 1.25 tons based on the previous Quanfu satellite that was launched by CGSTL perhaps in 2019. And so again, very large satellite and certainly the anchor satellite of that particular launch. There were four other payloads. Namely, we had three Gaofan 3D satellites, which are Earth observation satellites also for the Jilin-1 constellation of CGSTL. And the fifth and final payload was the Xingshi Dai 10 or the Xingshi Dai Shihao, uh, which is going to be part of uh, company uh, Ada Space's AI remote sensing constellation Xingshi Dai, which sounds like an awful lot of bud buzz phrases to be used in one sentence about a constellation, but we take their words for, for it. Um, the launch was covered in a bit more detail on last week's Dongfang Hour, so be sure 
sure to check that out if you'd like, as it did take place on Saturday. Um, I would say that the launch, uh, the main takeaway, other than what I've just mentioned, is that it's a good example of the diversity of stakeholders that we're starting to see in various Chinese launches. And so we've talked about this over the course of the last six to eight months, where we see a launch with five or six satellites. And several of them are you know, manufactured by one company, but then there's a partnership with another company or with some provincial government or with some other entity. And so this time we did see, again, CGSTL as the anchor client, but then uh, Inner Mongolia partnered with CGSTL and one of those satellites, as we mentioned last week, and, and Ada Space being another stakeholder here, possibly with the city of Chengdu, given the relationship there. So again, interesting launch and, and quite a, a diversity of, of stakeholders being involved. Uh, so the second launch, which took place two days later on July 5th, uh, put the Fengyun 3E satellite into orbit on board a Long March 4C. And so the Fengyun 3E is part of the second generation of meteorological satellites that are being launched by China, namely the Fengyun 3 and Fengyun 4 constellations. And so Fengyun 3 are sent into sun-synchronous orbit, whereas the Fengyun 4 satellites are sent into geostationary orbit. And for more information on the Fengyun 4, I would suggest checking out our Dongfang, Dongfang Hour from about five weeks ago, uh, where we covered the launch of the uh, Fengyun 4B satellite up to, uh, to geostationary orbit and all of the interesting things that you get when you send a meteorological satellite to geo rather than SSO. And I would also point out that while meteorological satellites are generally placed into uh, an orbit in order to have a, a morning or an afternoon flyover, um, the Fengyun 3E is sent into a sort of twilight orbit, so it is enabling shots at 5.30 a.m. and 5.30 p.m., and so a lot of coffee drinkers will probably be spotted by the Fengyun 3E, and good on them. <laughs> uh, so just one last takeaway from these couple of launches, and then I'll hand it over to Jean for the other half of this week's launch bonanza, um, is the large number of Earth observation satellites, or in some cases meteorolo meteorological satellites, that are being launched by China. And it's a major trend over the last several years, I think. And, and even more recently, like the last, say, one or two years, uh, we have seen sub-segments of the Earth observation market become quite hot. So the most recent example that I would think of would be synthetic aperture radar satellites or SAR satellites. We see quite a few commercial satellite manufacturers trying to develop this technology. We also see quite a few downstream players trying to commercialize the data that is created from these SAR satellites. And so again, a lot of EO satellites being launched. And I think there's a couple of reasons for this. So the first is that um, you could argue objectively that there's a lot of demand for Earth observation data by Chinese provinces and cities and other institutions. There's, uh, as we've covered before, you know, the agricultural sector in China is not terribly efficient. There's a lot of room to improve there. There's a lot of other areas where I think EO could objectively be a good business model. I think the other point worth mentioning and the other sort of factor is that when we look at satellites in the context of China, you have generally satellites divided into three different types. So there's communications, Earth observation, and satellite navigation. And generally speaking, Earth observation is seen as the sort of least regulated of these three in terms of launching satellites. So essentially, you could think, well, uh, you know, the, the Beidou constellation is pretty much a government-run constellation, and uh, the telecommunications industry in China remains quite sensitive. And so uh, here we are with, you know, dozens of Earth observation satellites being launched per month from uh, from China. 
And so just the last point on EO before Jean brings us to the, uh, the second half of this week's launches. So we did see a report published earlier this week by uh, Diaga Tiani, which is an Earth observation data analytics company, and 36KR, which is a sort of startup database kind of website about the EO industry in China. So pretty interesting piece. And uh, definitely check out the uh, the newsletter where we will include a little bit more analysis on that. So uh, Jean, because two launches is just not enough for one week, what are the other two launches that happened? So the first two launches were on Earth observation. The two others were on something else. Let's move to the third launch, which occurred the next day following the launch of the Fengyu satellite. So that was, this is on July the 6th. We have a Long March 3C that put a Tianlian 1-05 satellite into geostationary orbit. And interestingly, this comes at a time where the Tianlian satellites are really being used intensively by China's crewed space program. And indeed, the Tianlian satellites are China's geostationary relay satellites, which, as their name suggests, are relays between China's spacecraft in LEO and ground stations. And so rather than having direct communications between a spacecraft in LEO and uh, ground stations, um, signals are sent to the relay satellites, which transmit the signal to the destination spacecraft or the ground station. And by going through relay satellites, you solve a lot of the problems of, you know, initially having to cover, you know, the entire planet literally with ground stations to be able to maintain continuous communication with your spacecraft in LEO. And so um, Tianlian satellites are notably what enable the Chinese space station to maintain near continuous communications with China's ground control. And with three geostationary satellites placed strategically, you are basically able to provide worldwide coverage, as opposed to having many, many, many ground stations. So China started deploying its Tianlian 1 series of satellites in 2008, achieving worldwide coverage in 2012 when they had completed the launch of the Tianlian 1-01-02 and 03 satellites. And while providing global coverage, the Tianlian 1 satellites have a life expectancy of about eight years. And so this is why in recent years, China started sending replacement Tianlian-1 satellites. And so we had the launch of the Tianlian-1-04 in 2016. And now a couple of days ago, we had the launch of the Tianlian-1-05 in, so in 2021. The Tianlian-1-05, uh, it's worth noting that this is the last of the Tianlian-1 satellites, relay satellites to be sent into space. And this is because China has started to deploy a second generation of relay satellites, the Tianlian-2. And so the first of these satellites were launched in uh, 2019, the Tianlian-2-01. And we can expect uh, many more Tianlian launches, Tianlian-2 launches in coming years. So Tianlian-2 can replace the Tianlian-1 constellation. Um, the Tianlian-2 satellite series are based on a much more modern and heavier uh, satellite platform, the Dongfang Hong 4, as opposed to the Dongfang Hong 3 for the Tianlian-1 series. And this enables the satellites, basically the relay satellites, to um, have uh, more powerful payloads and basically to have higher data transfer rates compared to the Tianlian-1. So that's for the third launch. Moving on to the fourth launch of the week, on July the 9th, we had a Long March 6, sent a cluster of five Ningxia-1 satellites. And this is a second cluster of satellites from the Ningxia constellation to be launched, the first five having been launched in, uh, I think, 2019, and that was also on the Long March 6. Now, the Ningxia constellation, which also goes by the name of the Zhongzi constellation, is a mysterious one. From what we can get from various Chinese discussions, it seems that this constellation is a SIGINT constellation, so signal intelligence. And it's managed by a company called the Ningxia Golden Silicon Information Technology Company, and it claims to be a commercial SIGINT company, although 
customers for SIGINT would probably be the military. So I think the uh, commercial sticker here is probably quite relative. Um, the manufacturer of the satellites of the Ningxia constellation, also worth noting, is a cask subsidiary called Aerospace Dongfang Hong. So in conclusion, definitely one of the more mysterious constellations uh, of China based in the smallest province of the country called Ningxia. Last point worth noting also, uh, it was reported that the Long March 6 that was used for this launch uh, used a new and improved third stage, although not we don't have any additional information that was unveiled on what this new improved third stage consisted in. Indeed, those commercial SIGINT satellites, they are commercial relative to, let's say, the PLA. So probably we're not getting a whole lot of information on uh, on those those rockets. But um, just a couple of very last points on these um these points that you mentioned here. So, so in, in regard to the relay satellite, I guess one one thing that's kind of an interesting thought exercise is thinking about if the Chinese space station is over the ocean and they don't, I mean, it's, it's in low Earth orbit, so they only have a very small area of the Earth that they can see underneath them. And so there would be no way of communicating directly with the Earth. You'd have to go through through geostationary or some other orbit. So indeed, um, very nice to see the Tianlian-105 uh, launch. And I, I guess the last note on Tianlian-105, um, it was a farewell to the Dongfang Hong 3 bus. So this week, that was the last Dongfang Hong 3 satellite to be launched. This according to a couple of articles that we saw. So in the event that we see more Dongfang Hong 3, that's um, secondary source. And um, yeah, it was a very, you know, Dongfang Hong 3 has been a workhorse of the Chinese space program for quite some time. It was originally developed uh, all the way back in the late 1980s, although it did not come into service until the early 2000s. And we have seen quite a large number of Dongfang Hong 3 satellite buses put into orbit. So we salute you, DFH3. And uh, yeah, what a life. Um, last point. Uh, so with regard to the Ningxia constellation, I think, uh, John, your, your point about the um, I guess kind of the mysteriousness here is is definitely well taken. I think there's not a lot of information available, but I think one of the interesting kind of crumbs of evidence that we can find is the fact that they have had the political or the kind of financial or whatever wherewithal one would need to book a couple of Long March 6 launches where they seem to be the exclusive customer. I don't. And so that's quite, and they, they seem to be doing, you know, business directly with, uh, with Cask uh, by, uh, you know, buying these satellites from a Cask subsidiary. So it, it seems that, uh, again, they're, they're quite, it seems that they're quite, uh, close to the, let's say traditional, the, the national team perhaps. So speculation for sure. And, uh, it's good to see that, you know, China's smallest province is developing its own space economy, but, um, yeah, we'll see. Anything else, John, on the uh, the plethora of launches this week, or shall we get into my, my favorite topic of you know regional economic development in China? That is your topic. Let's let's move ahead with that. Might, people might think that was sarcasm, but no, that is actually my favorite topic. So, uh, so yeah, this week we saw the cities of Guangzhou and Tianjin add satellite internet to their development plans. And so in the case of Guangzhou, uh, we saw satellite internet being used as one tool for the construction of what they call a digital pilot zone. And in the case of Tianjin, we have seen satellite internet related plans in the city's 14th five-year plan. And so in Guangzhou, again, we have published this week the implementation plan for building a national digital economy innovation and development pilot zone in Guangzhou. With one of the tools being satellite internet, in addition to some far out ideas like quantum communication networks and 6G telecommunications. And so in general, the plan calls for increasing the digitization of everything in Guangzhou and specifically calls for things like, you know, a high speed intelligent network of all things. 
which sounds pretty far out, as well as building 38,900 5G base stations just in Guangzhou alone by 2022. And I think that, if nothing else, might be an interesting point in the favor of a Leo broadband constellation, because 38,900 5G stations sounds very, very expensive to deploy. Uh, other elements of the plan include strengthening digital public services, creating artificial intelligence and digital economy experimental zone, and by 2022 to have the city's software and information services industry reach an output annually of a cool 600 billion yuan. One final point uh, in Guangzhou, an interesting note, earlier this week, we saw Earth Observation Data Analytics sort of downstream company, PiSat, which is quite large, publicly traded. Uh, they set up what they referred to as their South China headquarters uh, in Foshan, which is a, in some respects a quite large suburb of Guangzhou. There's the uh, the Guangfo uh, subway line, which is a subway line that is starts in Guangzhou and ends in Foshan, or if you're coming from the other direction, it would be starting in Foshan and ending in Guangzhou. But interesting nonetheless to see this continuing development of a space sector in uh, in the sort of greater Bay Area, as it were, of Guangdong. And so now moving over to Tianjin, which is uh, just near Beijing in uh, in the Jingjinji area, which we referred to last week. Um, this week, we saw Tianjin publish its 14th five-year plan for the period of 2021 to 2025, which included several significant space industry elements. So notably, the city aims to uh, reach batch production of the Long March 5, 7, and 8 rockets while making significant progress in developing rocket components. The plan also calls for building a satellite internet production line with an annual output of more than 100 satellites, while also making reference to the National Satellite Broadband Plan. And finally, I would point out that Tianjin hopes to carry out final assembly and testing of super large spacecraft, such as core and test modules of the Chinese space station, reaching an annual capacity of six to eight spacecraft, including testing capabilities. I wonder what they will do with all of those spacecraft. And so just a little bit more to unpack here on Tianjin. So again, it's a port city very close to Beijing. It's already home to the manufacturing of several of China's larger rockets. So you have, uh, you know, so this idea of batch production of the Long March 5, 7, and 8, uh, while interesting and ambitious, is perhaps not so surprising. The other element of this, of building a satellite production line with a capacity of over 100 satellites per year, um, so this seems to be giving us some clues of, of CASC's activities in Tianjin. So over the last several years, we've seen several Chinese uh, space companies trying to build these uh, factories that would be building some, you know, dozens or hundreds of small satellites per year. And probably the most noteworthy example would be Kasich in Wuhan. They've been very public about the uh, the development of their their satellite factory. Now, CASC in Tianjin has been much less public about what they're up to. So we've seen a couple of tidbits here and there, most recently, I think 2018 or something like that, talking about wanting to have a satellite production line in Tianjin. But again, we have not really heard much more about this. And putting two and two together, unless there's another large space company in Tianjin that plans to create a 100 satellite manufacturing line, which is entirely possible, I would, I would but uh, perhaps less likely, um, I think it, we can probably assume that there is a reference here to CASC in the sense that they are you know, referring to the production line that CASC is already building. And I guess 
indirectly, that would provide Cask with a bit more political support from a municipal government perspective. Um, so yeah, definitely interesting to see Tianjin sort of formally codify the satellite factory as a goal for its next five years. And so overall, I think just the latest example of cities getting in line with the National Development and Reform Commission's addition of satellite internet to their new infrastructures list last year. And so moving forward, uh, we're seeing a lot of cities doing different satellite internet related initiatives. And with a relatively seemingly kind of limited degree of coordination between cities. And so it may likely lead to a rather higher degree of inefficiency than is completely necessary. But at the same time, it seems like we're going to have several quite competitive and comprehensive space industry clusters located in different parts of China. So definitely uh, an interesting uh, interesting news on my favorite topic. So, John, anything to add on your side about uh, Tianjin Guangzhou? Hmm. I think it's uh, it's very interesting to see these many initiatives coming from local municipalities and provinces to, to develop the local space industry. And definitely, I think also in recent years, the past three, four years, we've seen these initiatives really gaining momentum. And I think this is why you see more and more Chinese commercial companies also uh, moving or relocating to these cities. And so just to give a few examples regarding the two cities that we mentioned today, we have, for example, CASpace and also G-Space that moved or, or installed uh, a part of their activities in the Nansha Aerospace Park of Guangzhou. And in Tianjin, we know that we have uh, Tianbing Aerospace, which is a rocket manufacturer that's mm. also situated in the city. So definitely, I think that while maybe five or six or 10 years ago, commercial companies probably would have uh, located uh, their headquarters or their activities in Beijing. Now, with all these initiatives that we're seeing from different cities, municipalities around the country, uh, we're, we're seeing more and more commercial space companies go to these cities. For sure. And indeed, uh, both of these cities are like more than 15 million people. So when we talk about Guangzhou and Tianjin, this is this is talking about sort of a, a small to medium-sized European country, let's say, in terms of population. So a lot of people, lot, you know, large economy, large workforce, and uh, apparently now quite a lot of support for uh, for the space sector. Um, interesting times. Uh, anything else from your side, John, this week? I'm good. Yeah, I think I'm good here as well. Um, I guess a couple of housekeeping notes. Again, feel free to check out the newsletter. We've also been more active on Twitter with some quizzes, so be on the lookout for that. We have uh, some questions coming up this week. And um, other than that, I think we're, we're all good. So uh, this has been another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Space News Roundup. This for the week of the 5th to 11th of July, 2021. I'm Blaine Curcio, joined as always by my co-host, Jean Deville. And uh, we will see you next week, if not sooner. We might, you know, not to, not to overpromise, but there's a chance we drop a, a short video this week. I don't know. We'll have to see. But, but anyway, see you next week. Thank you for watching. See you next week.